Well, dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your grace this morning and letting us gather together. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we open your word, we ask that you'd please bless our time in it. Help us, Lord, to understand your word and to apply it to our lives, Father. And help me this morning to preach and to feed your sheep, I pray. I pray that everything here done this morning would be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing our journey through the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, please open to John chapter 3 and verse 22 is where we will pick it up from, where we left it last time. John chapter 3 and verse 22. But before we even read the text this morning, I want to begin by telling you that our text is going to propel us into this topic of humility this morning. And I tell you that before we've read it, because in studying this passage and preparing for the sermon, I was studying humility. But at the same time, I couldn't resist the urge to study the antonym of humility, which is pride. And I want to start this sermon this morning by reading from a little book that I was inevitably led to in my study this week. It was a little book just sitting at the top of my bookcase, and it's called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It's a little book. You may be familiar with it. Um, But I just wanted to read a little portion from that, from a chapter that C.S. Lewis titled The Great Sin. He wrote this, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. You may remember when I was talking about sexual morality, I warned you that the centre of Christian morals did not lie there. Well, now we have come to the centre. According to the Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. End quote. To put it simply, what Lewis is communicating there is that pride seems to be at the root of all sin. And pride is a sin that none of us are immune to. Now, when we turn in our Bibles to see what God thinks of pride, we read in Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19, that there are six things the Lord hates. The first on that list is pride, haughty eyes. Yet if we're to take our eyes off the Bible for a second, and we're to evaluate pride based on how our culture views it, we would think that pride is something to be desired. Because pride seems to run rampant in our day and age. 
Our culture feeds off pride. This attitude of arrogance and competition and rivalry and covetousness and the race to become rich and successful and to be famous and to have all eyes on me is what seems to be at the very core of our culture. At the heart of it, we are a people who love pride. And if we're to boil our problem down in society just to one sin, it would be pride. We've become a proud people. Even the message that has been promoted today by just about everyone who has a platform is one of self-esteem and self-confidence and self-love, which at the core of it is pride. It's a message of pride. And I hate to say it, but I fear that even the church has bought into this competition, rivalry, success-based, look-at-how-big-we-are mindset, and at the same time embrace the world's message of self-help and self-esteem. So as I look at God's Word... And then I look around at our culture, the question that is on my mind is why is nobody talking about humility? What happened to humility? Can we even define what humility is? If we look at the Bible again, we see that God's word puts humility and the fear of the Lord side by side. Proverbs 22 Verse 4 says that the reward for fear, or for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honour and life. The NIV reads Proverbs 22.4 literally as humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches, honour and life. So judging by that verse, if humility is the fear of the Lord then our culture has lost its fear of God. Now, if I was to define humility and to try to give it the best biblical definition that I can that will serve us in a practical sense, my definition would be something along these lines. I would say, humility is having the correct view of ourselves before God. Humility is understanding the correct diagnosis of who we are before God. Because to me at least, when I face that reality of who I am, that produces in me the fear of the Lord. Yet get this, the dictionary defines humility as having a low view of one's importance. A low view of one's importance. So, according to the dictionary, to fear God and to view yourself as God would view you is to have a view of low importance. Which is not true. It's good to note that when discussing humility, in God's eyes, humility is seen as a virtue. It's the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 
11.2 says that with humility comes wisdom, yet humility in the world's eyes is viewed as a weakness. It's seen as a fault or a defect. We're to be strong. We're to be believers in ourselves. We're to have it all together and believe that we are enough in ourselves. That's what the world would have us believe. It's simply just another example of good being called evil and evil being called good. Because what was once considered sin, pride, is now celebrated worldwide without any hesitation. I mean, seriously, we find ourselves in this month that has been named Pride Month. It's been totally flipped on its head. And if there's anything that we, as God's people, the church, desperately need to stand set apart from the world and to walk in a way that is pleasing to God is to be clothed in humility. We're to be clothed in humility. As God's people, we're commanded to have the attitude that Christ had, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're to have that attitude, one of humility as Christ has. 1 Peter 5.5 5 instructs us in this way. It says, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but he shows favour to the humble. And Colossians 3.12 instructs us in this way. It says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So what do we do as God's people in this sin-sick age when pride has become the new normal? What we do is we remind ourselves of truth and we use that truth to clothe ourselves in humility, which is why today we're going to be reminding ourselves of three truths that will clothe us in humility so that we will be aided against the pride that can so easily grow in our own hearts. Three truths that are going to come straight out of the mouth of John the Baptist that if we grasp, will clothe us in humility so that we will be aided against the pride that so easily grows in our own hearts and the pride that the world loves to promote. So let's begin reading our text. We're in John chapter 3 and verse 22. And it reads this. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there. And people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. 
Therefore there arose a discussion on the parts of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now let's just stop there for a second. Just so we have a clear understanding of what's going on, and then this will set us up for the next half of our passage. We're going to make our ways to the end of the chapter, verse 36 today. But we start in verse 22, says, after these things. Now you may remember that our past couple times in the Gospel of John, we've been with Jesus in Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples have been in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and it was there at the Passover feast that we witnessed him cleanse the temple and perform many other miracles. And then because of those miracles, we had a Pharisee come and talk to Jesus by night. And he wasn't just a Pharisee, he was a ruler of the Pharisees. He was the teacher of Israel named Nicodemus. Now, as we progress through this gospel, after Jesus has celebrated that Passover feast, after he's cleansed the temple, after he's had his conversation with Nicodemus, he decides to take his disciples and go into the countryside of Judea. And there he starts a very similar work to that of John the Baptist. He's baptizing people. And we can assume from that that if he's baptizing people, that he must be calling people to be baptized, therefore he's preaching. He's preaching repentance. And that's clear because his baptism would have been a baptism of repentance. And uh, from Matthew's gospel, it's clear that early on in Jesus' ministry, he's out there preaching repentance. So he's baptizing people when, and preaching to people that they need to be right with God. They need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Although it is worthy to note that in saying that, that Jesus himself wasn't actually baptizing anyone. He would have been the one doing the preaching. That's what we're told anyways in uh, verse 2 of chapter 4 of John's Gospel. It says, although Jesus himself was not baptizing anyone, but his disciples were. But it's not wrong to attribute this baptizing work to Jesus because he would have been the main voice in calling the people to be baptized and he's the leader of the group. Now, carrying on to verse 23, we're told that at the same time, John the Baptist is still continuing his ministry, but he's in a different area to Jesus. John's preaching and baptizing in Anon near Salem. And that's quite interesting to note. Maybe we've never realized this, but when we're introduced to John's ministry in chapter 1, there he was preparing the way for Messiah because that's what he was called to do. Messiah then comes on the scene and instead of just packing up and folding his hands and my job's done, he's here, now he continues his ministry and he continues to point people to Christ. So there's a little time period where Jesus' ministry and John's ministry seem to overlap. And that's where we're finding ourselves here today in this overlapping time period of John and Jesus' ministry. So these two ministries are running parallel together in the land of Israel. John is baptizing and he's still got disciples. He's probably gaining more disciples. And Jesus also has gone into the countryside with his disciples to baptize as well. Now it says that 
Some of John's disciples get into a discussion with a Jew regarding purification. Now, it may have started as what was a discussion, but you may have in your Bible that discussion has been translated debate or argument between John's disciples and the Jews. That's because what most likely started off as a discussion on purification quickly escalated into a debate. On purification and we don't have a record of that conversation but purification is like an umbrella term if you like many topics could have come out of purification such as cleansing rituals and cleansing rites and purifying ceremonies and then of course baptism because baptism is symbolic of purification and it's quite clear judging by the next verse that at some point during this debate, baptism was brought up. And we don't know exactly how the conversation went, but we can imagine it might have gone something like this. Somebody would have mentioned baptism, and I imagine the Jews probably couldn't resist saying something like this to John's disciples. Well, speaking of baptism, isn't that what your rabbi John does? The disciples of John go, yeah, that's what we do, that's our thing. So then the Jews say, well, why is Jesus baptizing? And John's disciple goes, what? What do you mean? And they go, yeah, Jesus is out there in the countryside of Judea baptizing. And John's disciples go, why would he do that? Nobody told us he's going to do that. That's our rabbi's thing to do. That's his ministry. And then just to push the knife in just a little bit more, the Jews goes, and not only is he baptizing, but I've seen the crowds. And they're way bigger than anything that John has pulled. And that's when John's disciples get defensive. They get jealous for their rabbi because they're loyal to him. So they go and they go find John and they tell him. Now, even though John has always pointed his disciples and pointed people to Christ, he's made that very clear that he's only a voice. His disciples are still concerned for his ministry. They're jealous of him, or they're jealous for him, sorry. They don't want him losing his ministry of baptism to Jesus. So they go find their rabbi, their master, and verse 26 records for us that they go to him and they say to him, Rabbi! He who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. All are coming to him. Not only is he baptizing, which is your thing, John, but, but everyone is going to him. He's got more people than us. Did you know this, John? Now, how's John going to respond? Is John going to respond by saying, you know what? You know, I've actually noticed my numbers have been down lately. I just, this makes sense. I couldn't put my finger on it, but of course, Jesus has taken You know, guys, what we need to do? We need to get them back. We need to attract them back. We need to get the lights going. We need the smoke machines. We need to get these crowds back. Is that how he's going to respond? No. 
Listen to how John responds to this situation. Verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of, of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's response is one of humility. He's clothed in humility. He doesn't respond out of jealousy or rivalry or pride. He's humble. He understands truth. And he knows exactly what's going on. And so he responds out of humility. He then goes on to say, verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. That's John's response. John is clothed in humility. And if there's one verse in John's response that just sums up the entire attitude that he has, it's got to be verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's the statement of a truly humble man who understands truth. And that's the statement and the attitude that we almost have as God's people. Now, in John's response to his disciples, he reminds them, or maybe he teaches them of three truths as to why he can say, he must increase, but I must decrease. There are three truths to why John's not prideful and it doesn't bother him in the slightest that Jesus' ministry is growing and his ministry is shrinking. Matter of fact, he's even rejoicing that Jesus' ministry is growing. And so we're going to have a look at these three truths. The first truth, verse 27, that John gives to his disciples is that God is sovereign. John is humble because he has a correct view of God. He understands the truth that God is sovereign. Verse 27 reads, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. John understands that he hasn't earned anything. He has received nothing by his own merit. But everything he has received, he has received 
as a gift from God, from heaven. He has a correct view of God, of his sovereignty in providing for him and in his ministry. He gets it. He gets that his ministry has just been a gift that he received. It's a blessing from God. And if now God wants to bless Jesus' ministry, then who is he to get in the way of that? It wasn't his ministry that he built up. It was his ministry that he was given. And he understands it. He understands that all things that he's received, the amount of people that listen to him, his disciples, his gift of preaching and baptizing, the results, none of that, none of it is his. He hasn't earned any of it, but all of it has been a gift from heaven. He's been given everything he has from God, who is sovereign. Now the understanding of God's sovereignty, especially, especially in this area of ministry, is absolutely vital to us being clothed in humility. Because when we understand that everything that we have been given as God's people is a gracious gift from God, not something that any of us have earned, then it leaves no room for rivalry. It leaves no room for competition or comparison or entitlement or pride but all it leaves is the attitude of humility to be clothed in humility we must understand that all ministries the large ones the small ones all gifts the public ones and the not so public ones all skills, whether they be practical or academic, all of them have been distributed the way they have been, not because people are better than other people, not because people have earned it, but because that's the way the potter has chosen to mould the clay. They're all gifts from heaven. They're just a gift. And it is God who sovereignly increases and decreases ministries. And it is God who sovereignly gives the gifts. It's crucial to understand that when certain ministries are built up or certain gifts are given, they're never given or built up because of something that man did or for the sake of glorifying a man. No, they're always given and they're always built up for the purpose of glorifying God. And I think we'd do well if we understood this truth that God is sovereign in the gifts in the ministries. And we leave this thinking behind of some people are better than others. 
or this rivalry or this competition or even the thinking of that somehow God owes me something because I have this gift. No, we just receive what he gives us with thankful hearts. This truth clothes, clothes us in humility because when we understand that everything has been given from heaven, we cease comparing ourselves with others and we simply just rest in that truth. We don't have to be worried about competition and trying to one-up our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no room for rivalry in our Christian walk because all that we have all that our brother has or our sister may have has been given from God as a gift anyways. All we have to do is just receive whatever it is God wants to give us and receive it in thankfulness and humility. Now, in saying that, is that then an excuse to be lazy with our responsibilities in ministry or with our gifts? No, it's not. Quite the opposite. We work hard for the Lord and we serve him with the gifts and the talents and the ministry that he may have given us. But the humble man works hard for the Lord, but he simply just leaves the results to God. It's God who brings the increase. And John understood that. Which is why he's not worried if he loses his congregation to Jesus. He knows he's been faithful in the ministry. He knows he's done what God has called him to do. His conscience is clear. And if God wants to bring his ministry to a close and build up Jesus' ministry, then he's content. He's happy with that. It was just a gift anyways. And he stewarded that gift well. He understands God's sovereignty. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 and 6. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. It says, There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of ministries, and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Then if you were to go down to verse 11 of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, it says that the Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So that's the first truth. John has clothed himself in humility because he has the right view of God. He understands the truth that God is sovereign and that a man can receive nothing unless it had been given to him from heaven. The second truth, which is found in verse 28 to verse 30, is that John has the right view of himself. John is clothed in humility because he understands his role as God's servant. 
Verse 28 to 30 reads, You yourselves are my witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. John understands the role that God has delegated to him. And he's clothed in humility because he's secure in that role that God gave him. He starts by telling his disciples, You yourselves are my witnesses that I've been saying that I'm not the Christ. We heard him say that back in verse 20 of chapter 1 when the Jews were trying to find out who he was. And he says to them, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the guy you want to be looking out for. I'm just a voice is what he said. I'm just a voice. Then verse 29 of this chapter, he, he, he likens himself to a best man at a wedding. And Jesus as the groom, he says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. John understands that he is not the groom, but he's just the friend of the groom. Now we may wonder why John would use this illustration of a wedding. And I think he did so for two reasons. Firstly, he's communicating to his disciples that it's good that Jesus is getting more attention than him. Why? Because at a wedding, who is at the center of attention? The friend of the groom? If it's a friend, something's wrong. It's the wedding couple the bride and the groom who are in the limelight at the wedding. They're at the centre of attention. And by using this illustration, he's able to communicate to his disciples that it's a good thing Jesus is stepping into the spotlight because he's the groom. He's the one who you should have your eyes upon. I'm only the friend of the groom. I'm not the one who people should be looking at. My role is only to serve the groom. Therefore, I rejoice that Jesus is starting to get more attention than me because it's only fitting that he does. And secondly, in using this illustration, he's confirming that he understands his role and he's fully content in it. The role God gave him was to be the friend of the groom. And in ancient times, I'm not too sure whether this tradition was still carrying on in uh, John's time, but before that, the friend of the groom at the wedding feast or the ceremony had the responsibility of bringing the bride to her groom. And that would start the wedding ceremony. And really... If John is alluding to that, then that's a perfect picture of John the Baptist's ministry. Because in calling the nation of Israel to repentance, 
and preparing the way for Messiah, their groom, those who were obedient to the preaching of John the Baptist, and they, those who repented then became the bride prepared for the groom. And then when the groom comes on the scene, or sorry, yeah, and John points to the groom, he simply just hands the bride over. He's just a friend of the groom. John just simply hands her over and now it's time for him to fade out and for the attention to be on the wedding couple. There's no rivalry in John. There's no competition. There's only humility because he understands his place as God's servant. There's no conflict over who's getting the glory and who's got more people. John knows that, no, all the glory belongs to him. He understands that he's only God's servant. That's why he can say this joy of mine has been made full. He gets it. And to sum it all up, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And really, that's the attitude that all of us who are clothed in humility have. And it's here, I just want to insert a little comment because there's this weird notion that sort of floats around in Christianity that says that if you really want to be God's servant and you want to dedicate your life to God, then you should be the preacher or you should be a pastor. You should occupy some sort of position that gets attention. But can I tell you that nothing can be further from the truth in that? If God is calling you to be a preacher, then be a preacher. But all of us who are Christians are God's servants. And God has given us each a role to fulfill. And he's given various giftings and talents to fulfill that role that he's called you to. God is the sovereign one who molds the clay, how he sees fit. He's the one who gives the gifts. And the best thing we can do in serving the Lord is discover what giftings and talents the Lord has given you or us and serve the Lord in that capacity, in that role. Don't buy into the lie that you have to be a man of influence or a pastor, or a preacher to serve God. It's simply not true. That's a lie that has been bred in the church because of pride. Because pride has crept in. And men want glory for themselves. No, the best thing you can do in serving the Lord is to be faithful in your responsibilities. Know your role, know what God has called you to, called you to, and do that faithfully. It could be 
that you're just called to work hard at your job and bear a good Christian reputation in the workplace and be an influence among your workmates. That could be your calling. Just walk with the Lord in integrity and purity. It could be that the Lord has called you to be a faithful wife and mum and you're to serve your husband and raise your kids and the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I don't know exactly what your calling may be, but it could be just to provide for your family, to love your wife, to pray for the church and then support the church where you can. I'm not entirely sure. I can't speak for everyone here, but what... I can say is that it's most likely whatever the Lord has called you to do is already in your life right now. You just need to do it faithfully to Him. And I do know this as well, that I tell you that if we walk faithfully with the Lord and we fulfill what it is that the Lord has called us to do, whatever it may be, whatever is in your life, whatever giftings he has given you, then I guarantee that you do that faithfully, that on the day of judgment, you will stand ahead of many, many pastors and teachers and men of influence who were called to be that, but they were lazy in their job. And though... They looked good on the outside because they had all these people around them. God sees everything that's done in secret and he sees the heart. That's what he called them to do and they were lazy in it. I tell you, don't be lazy in your calling and don't compare yourself with somebody else's calling or gift or ministry. If we grasp this, that we're, we're only God's servants, as John grasped it, then we will be clothed in humility. And all rivalry will cease, competition will cease, because we understand that we're not all called to do the same thing. So that's the second truth. To recap, the first truth we looked at was that God is sovereign. The second truth that we looked at is that we're only God's servants. And now the third truth that clothes us in humility is found in verse 31 to 36 and that's Christ's supremacy. John is humble because he understands the truth that Christ is supreme. He has the right view of Christ. He has the right view of God. He has the right view of himself. And now from verse 31, he has the right view of Jesus. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now who is he talking about? Of course, he's talking about Christ. He's talking about Jesus. He then goes on to say, verse 32, What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies. 
and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. See, John gets it. Even in his ministry, with Christ running parallel to him, he got it. He knew who Christ was. He who comes from above is above all. And then he says, but he who is of the earth is from the earth. John has the right view of Christ. He's telling his disciples that that guy who's getting all the crowds, whose ministry is increasing, he's from heaven. But I, John, I'm only from the earth. I'm only earthly, but him, he, he is above all. That's why he's humble in pointing people to Christ. Because he has a correct view of himself. Then he has a correct view of Christ. And when you understand that, why would you bother even pointing people to yourselves or getting any glory for yourself? You'd only point people to the one who was above all, who was Jesus. He then says, verse 32, What he has seen and heard of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. And you know, in, in those two verses, verse 31 and verse 32, John is basically just regurgitating what Jesus had already revealed about himself in the conversation of Nicodemus. We can cross-reference those two verses, just back a page, to verse 11 and 13 of chapter 3, when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify and what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then he says, well, by the way, I'm from heaven. No one has ascended into heaven, but he has descended from heaven. And... John is just saying what Christ has already said about himself. He accepts Christ's testimony. And he knows who Christ is. That's why he's humble and he's secure in himself. He's got an accurate Christology. And when we have an accurate Christology, then we also have an accurate view of ourselves. And when we have an accurate view of ourselves, we then have an accurate accurate view of God and then there's no wonder how you can be clothed in humility or how John is clothed in humility because he understands these three truths. He then goes on to tell his disciples that really it's Jesus who is the one that they should be listening to anyways, not him. Listening to him, listen to him, listen to Christ, because that's all I'm, who I'm pointing to anyways. He says, verse 33, He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. So he's telling his disciples, you don't want to call God a liar, then receive what Jesus is saying. 
receive his testimony, listen to him. And verse 34, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. It's incredible, John's understanding of Christ, because that's what we were taught in the very first verse of John's Gospel, that Christ is the Logos. He's the living Word. He's the one who speaks the words of God literally embodies God's word and that's what John is telling his disciples that he speaks the words of God and that he's been given the spirit without measure we have to remember that John is speaking when John's speaking he's speaking under the old covenant the Holy Spirit hasn't been given yet so he's speaking about Christ there Christ is the one who has the spirit without measure and Colossians 2.9 just reaffirms that fact where it says that for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He, not only is he from heaven, not only does he speak the word of God, but he is literally indwelt by God because he is God. He understands who Christ is. Then he goes on to say, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands, and that he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Basically, John just gave his disciples the gospel message, and it's what John preached throughout his ministry. He just points people to Christ. There he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is, believe on him. When his disciples wanted to go follow Jesus in chapter 1, he would have been ushering them out. Yes, go follow him. Stop following me. Follow Christ. He told them that they ought to believe in Christ and that they have their focus on Christ. Why? Because... He understands that Christ is supreme and that he's heavenly and that he speaks the words of God. But me, I'm only earthly. I'm only his servant. So John was clothed in humility because he understood that truth. He understood the truth that Christ is supreme. And we'll leave our text there for today. But Boy, what a blessing it would have been to be John's disciple that day, huh? To get a lesson like that in humility when you've just come running up to him with your heart filled with jealousy and competition and who's this guy taking over our ministry? But John has been clothed in humility because he understands these three truths. One of my commentaries likened John the Baptist, or any minister for matter of fact, to that of a star and Christ being the sun. And for a time, John the Baptist was shining, but then as the sun rose, the light from the sun then fades the light of the star until it's not even seen anymore and it just disappears but then the sun is in its full glory and I think 
for ministers in particular, but even for all of us as God's servant, that should be our goal. Our goal should be that through our lives, Christ's light is radiated so much that it is him who is increasing and it is us who is decreasing. We need to fade away till essentially we're not seen anymore. And that phrase I like that John used, he must increase but I must decrease because it's so simple, it's so easy that we can all remember it. And I'll just close with this. You know, John is a model for us. He is. He's always pointing people to Christ. And even in correcting his disciples, he made the main focus Christ. So in a sense, I hope that we'd be like John and would learn off him and we would clothe ourselves in humility as he did. But even more so, I pray that we wouldn't just learn off John, but that we would listen to John and we would listen to the message that he was given to preach. Because we need not to be followers of John, rather we need to be followers of Christ, for Christ gave everything that John had to him. And although John is a great example of what humility is, the best example of humility is found in Christ. Because Philippians 2 says that he was found in the appearance of a man and that he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that is the great example of humility. So, three truths this week as we walk with the Lord. Number one, understand that God is sovereign. Number two, Understand that God has gifted each of us as he sees fit. And number three, understand that Christ is supreme. We grasp these three truths, then we will be equipped against pride, which can so easily creep into our own hearts, and we will be clothed in humility, and we'll walk in a way pleasing to the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for that record of John the Baptist's response to his jealous disciples, Lord. And I pray that we would learn from John and we too would clothe ourselves in humility as you've commanded us to. I pray that in our own hearts we wouldn't be secretly comparing ourselves with one another and we wouldn't be prideful and thinking that we're better than one another, but Lord, we would just use the giftings that we've been given from you to serve you and to serve people and to leave the results and, and everything else to you. Help us, Lord, to walk in humility, which can be hard when our world is telling us so much about pride and it seems to be the culture to be arrogant and have all eyes on you. But Lord, help us fade away. Help us decrease. And I pray that you would increase. So thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this time together.
And I pray that in all that we do, you would have the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.